Well, it's a privilege and honor to be here again, get to preach here again in this place. Um, you were closer than you know to right, brother. It wasn't five minutes before I came in here, but we've been packing and moving, and I've been praying over this text for several months, actually, and I didn't put anything on paper till about 11.30 last night's when I started, after a couple of days of busy packing, but... God's Word is sufficient in and of itself, and maybe with the exhaustion and tiredness that I'm feeling, it will be easier to just hide behind His Word and set His Word before us all. He receive all the glory from anything that's said today that is good, and anything that's not, well, that's on me. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to go through verses 1 through 14 just highlight some of the aspects of 1 through 14, and we'll focus in at the end on verses 13 and 14. Titled the message, Pressing On. So read with me, starting in verse 1, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Bow with me in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are helpless and hopeless and utterly cast upon you for grace and mercy. Father, I bow even now, trembling, terrified under your word that I preach the glories of your Son and the truths of this text as you would have me to, that we would receive, that our knowledge of you would be deepened this morning. Father, help us to worship you as we hear as we learn, as we come to see you, Father. Help us, cause us to respond appropriately. Let us see the weight of of this, the reality of your desire for us to continue seeking the knowledge of your Son. Father, I pray you would glorify yourself, that you would give us power this morning. Father, apart from your Spirit working power in this place, we're wasting our time and this is empty and vain. We need you to come and fill this place, Father, that you would fill this pulpit. Speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Paul here is continuing, I won't go through the entire context of Philippians, but he's continuing a common theme you see in a lot of Paul's writing. He deals a lot with the Judaizers, with what he refers to as the concision and circumcision. And he, he, he's always calling them out for their external religion. And here he's continuing to do that. He highlights what true people of God, who the true people of God are, what characterizes them. And he sets that over and against those who are of the uh, Judaism at the time, the false external religion of the Pharisees and others. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now, from the very beginning, we see a very important point here in verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. This isn't the first time he's told this church what he's about to tell them. And one of the things that marks biblical preachers is that they're not interested in always finding something new or contemporary or relevant to say. They don't need a new message every week. They don't need to find something special and new that's going to get the people stirred up and excited. Rather, they're constantly going back to the same message. Paul says, it doesn't bother me to tell you this again. And if those who preach in this place are biblical, they're going to continue preaching the same thing to you. He said in another place, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing else. There's nothing else that's going to produce power in the life of the church but the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation and it continues to be the power of God in the church. Only in as much as you're focused on Jesus Christ and His gospel will the church be of any use in this world. That is the point that he's making. That he's going back to this message of the gospel, the true gospel. And notice how he refers to them as brethren. Finally, my brethren. He's talking to the church. People that Paul himself believed to be Christians. And he goes on to explain that his motive for writing, the reason it doesn't bother him to tell them the same thing again, is because he wants them to be safe. What do you suppose Paul means by that? That he wants them to be safe. For you it is safe. Safe from what? Safe from being led towards false doctrines. Safe from practicing this empty external religion. And safe from hell. You realize Paul believed in the perseverance of the saints. (laughs) Paul believed in the security of the believer. He believed in that. He taught that in many places. But at the same time, he was so confident in the reality that there are people in a part of biblical churches that are going to hell, that can be led astray. So much so that he's concerned enough to continue evidently writing the same things over and over, that they might be safe, safe from being led astray by these things, safe from hell. So from the word go, let me ask you, This is as biblical church as I've ever seen. But just because you're even accepted and a part of this church doesn't mean that you're safe. God inspired this word and has protected it that we might have it today. And this word is just as relevant to us today that we might be safe, that you might be safe. Are you confident that you're safe from these things? It's possible to be recognized even by the most super spiritual people as a Christian, and be in eternal danger. I mean, just imagine that yourself. If the Apostle Paul came walking in here right now and looked at you and said, you know what, I'm pretty sure you're a brother. I mean, that, that's a confidence, you know, booster. You know, you know, the Apostle Paul, he thinks I'm a Christian. So many times if you can rub shoulders with the elders or the leaders in your church and they're accepting of you and they think highly of you, that grants you a measure of, what, assurance? That is not where our assurance comes from, is not the opinions of men. Verse 2, he goes on, he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. He repeats, beware, beware, beware. This is a serious thing he's dealing with here. It's a love for the people of the church in Philippi that he's writing this. He's concerned for them, concerned for their souls. That ought to be something that stands out to you. That repetition there means this is important. 
Beware. Have your eyes open. Be paying attention to this. This is no small thing I'm dealing with here, he says. Beware. Strong language. And he's referring here to the dogs, evil workers, and the concision. He's talking about the same group of people in all three of those, all three of those, those uh, descriptions. He's talking about the self-righteous religious. Self-righteous religious people. Beware of them. Those who will give you an external standard to follow and guarantee you some sort of assurance because you followed that standard. It's legalism all over again. Legalism. If those in leadership in your church here, if they're holding, setting before you an external standard and that's the basis on which they judge your spirituality, and there's no soul searching, no heart reality in anything. It's just, are you stepping in line? Are you staying in line? Are you doing everything that you think you're supposed to do? If that's what it is, he says, beware. Beware of those that want to give you confidence in your flesh. And self-righteous religious people go to hell every day. You know, most of the time we hear things like this in the groups that we're a part of, and you think, yeah, those nominal Christians over there, those... Whatever, the other denominations, but not us, not in the Reformed, not in the Calvinistic, not in these solid groups of people, these solid churches. No, 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 not us. We believe rightly. That separates us somehow. It's just as possible to be a part of a correct, biblical, theologically sound church and still be going through these external religious motions. It's every bit as possible. Maybe maybe even more dangerous because you can sound really good whenever you talk about theology and truth. You can listen to guys that are right and develop convictions that are good, but just be meeting some external standard that you have deemed this is what God sees as accepting. If you believe the five points of this, you do this and this, you join this church and you take your church, you homeschool your kids, do all these things, then you're, then you're good with God. But those people who aren't doing those things, that aren't a part of a church like this one, they're the ones that need to be aware. No, we need to be aware. And we need to beware of these things. And then he goes on in verse 3 and he says, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He's absolutely at the beginning of this, cutting out from under you, cutting the legs out from under any person that thinks they're pleasing God in their own strength. You're not doing it. The person that you think is the most spiritual, the most religious, the most godly person that you know is not pleasing God with their works. Not in the final consideration of things. That you may have no confidence in the flesh. And Paul's contrasting the true church, the true Israel here, with the dogs, the evil workers, and the self-righteous religious in the previous verse. He's, he's contrasting them here. Those who practice true and saving religion are the ones who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You know, this could absolutely be said of all the saints throughout the Old Testament. That God chose to redeem and save before Christ. They worshipped God in the Spirit. They rejoiced in the promised Redeemer, promised Messiah, and had no confidence in their own flesh to be saved before God. Nothing in what they could do. This has not changed. But there are some things that must be true about you if if you're going to be a part of this circumcision, this true Israel. To worship God in the Spirit, you must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can't worship God in the Spirit if you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is Spirit. In order to have access to God, you must be indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. There's the connection there between your worship. You worship God in the Spirit. To rejoice in Christ Jesus, you must believe in what He's accomplished. Why would you rejoice in Christ if you don't believe or understand what He's done for you? Much has already been said today about his substitutionary work, going to the cross and taking our sins upon his shoulders and suffering under the wrath of God for us. If you don't believe that, what are you worshiping Christ Jesus for? What is the basis of your worship? Is it because he can fix your marriage? Because he can get you nice things? Because you can live a comfortable, happy life through Jesus? 
For you worship Christ Jesus. You worship him with everything that's in you apart from your flesh when you see that he's the one who's met the standard that God demands and requires. To rejoice in Christ Jesus, you must believe in what he's accomplished. And to have no confidence in the flesh, you must believe that salvation is absolutely the grace and mercy of God. And that there's nothing that you do that adds to it. That's the only way. If there's even this much confidence in your flesh, this isn't it. This isn't you. If you're trusting in any part of you being acceptable before God, Jesus did this, 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 and this, but I did this, and that's why God's going to accept me. That's a lie. You're not accepted by your merit. It's grace alone. Grace alone. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in your ability to please God. And then in verses 4 through 6, Paul gives somewhat of his resume or description of his accomplishments and accolades. And after saying, the true church, the true Israel of God are those who have no confidence in the flesh, let me tell you, if somebody has reason to be confident in their flesh, it's me. That's what he says. Verses 4 through 6, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man, any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. There's no other person that's going to be able to keep the external law better than Paul. That's what he's saying. He's declaring that as far as external religion, he was perfect in his, in his own eyes, but also in the eyes of others. Before he met Christ on the Damascus Road. If he is accepted by God based on confidence that he has in his flesh, his heritage, his upbringing, his keeping of the law, his zeal in persecuting the church. If he has confidence before God in any of those things, Jesus Christ is absolutely unnecessary. It's blasphemy to have confidence in yourself. Do you realize that? Because you're saying it wasn't necessary that Christ come. The second person of the Trinity takes on a flesh and his humiliation comes to this earth and suffers and dies for nothing. (coughs) It's the height of folly to have confidence in your flesh. But Paul says, I met the standard. That external standard that we all strive to meet so that our neighbors and people in the church think highly of us. Paul says, I met it. And everybody thought highly of me. But it didn't count at all before God. It didn't help me at all before God. This was all before he met Christ. And you just think about this. Think about the relationship between Christ's work and external religion. We can see it practically if you just consider some of the cults. Mormons deny the uniqueness of Christ's deity. They say that it's possible for all of us to become gods someday. But they're they're some of the, the kindest, nicest, most morally good people you'll ever meet as a Mormon. Why? Because they're trying to merit favor before God. And that ought to bring shame to a lot of us. That our lives and our kindness and our love towards the other doesn't meet some of these cults who are trying to earn righteousness. For some reason, because Christ has saved us, we ought to strive all the more. That's what we're going to see at the end of this message today. But those, those who are trusting in their own, their own works, they take Jesus and they say, oh, well, he's just like the rest of us. We can all become God someday. Or the Jehovah Witnesses who just flat out deny his deity. He's not God at all. And they have this works-based system where they perform in order to please God. And then, what about synergistic Christians? They deny Christ's ability to accomplish salvation apart from man's efforts. What I'm telling you is any attempt at self-righteousness is an attack against Jesus Christ. You cannot believe that you are pleasing God and at the same time hold Christ in his lofty position that he deserves. You can't see him as a perfect savior if you've done part of the work. No confidence in the flesh. Paul's saying, I had reason if anybody, if he doesn't, I guarantee you don't. And that's his point. Are you trusting in what you have done? Are you trusting in the fact that A biblical church believes that you're a Christian, that you've said the right things, that you've done what's necessary to be accepted by your peers. Is that the basis of being saved, being accepted by human beings? 
Absolutely not. God is the judge of all the earth and he will judge you. You're going to stand before God. And the question is, are you trusting in the one who has met God's requirements? Because you can't. Are you trusting in your understanding of theology? You believe in the five points of Calvinism. You believe in all, you've got your theological ducks in a row. And so God's going to accept me. I suppose there will be those who stand before God and they're told, depart from me, I never knew you. You are trusting in the fact that you had something to do. You prayed a prayer. You did X, Y, and Z. And that's why you're saved. But I also suppose there will be those that are said to them, depart from me. You were trusting in the fact that you believed the truth and others didn't. And it was on the basis of your knowledge and your understanding of my word. You're not trusting in my son. You're trusting in yourself. The same as the other side. We must be looking to Christ. You know how many ways it's possible to have confidence in your flesh? Every single day. It's the heart of pride in everything. Every evil work. Confidence in yourself. Verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. All of these things that Paul had accomplished in his life up until now, he says, they don't matter. They're, they're loss. I don't care. I don't need them. Those things that I thought so highly of, that I pursued with every fiber of my being, away with them. Let me only have Christ. And Christ alone, he says, I counted them lost for Christ. This is a beautiful picture of true repentance. As though Paul, it's almost as though you can imagine him writing this letter and he gets in. You know how it is sometimes you're sharing your testimony with somebody and you start talking about all of the wicked things that you've done. And then you remember a funny story that happened in there and then you start kind of laughing about it and you're all carried up. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, those things are wicked and God hates them, but he saved me. He saved me. He's overcome with excitement and the joy of what God has done. He says, but... But with those things that were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. They're lost for the sake of Christ. They're not worth anything anymore. But here's the question. And this is important. This is really important. He says, is Paul saying that being outwardly religious is wrong? Is he saying that all of his pursuits towards keeping the law were without value? No. Because he says those things which were gained to me. They were gained. There is an advantage in being a Jew and having the oracles of God. There is an advantage in raising godly children in a godly environment, teaching them from the home, teaching them the things of God. Can you save them? Absolutely not. Will training them rightly save you? No, it won't. But there is extreme value in these things. We're not advocating an antinomianism or rejection of God's law in this. We're saying that that's not the basis for your salvation. For being safe, as Paul puts it. You will not be safe according to those things. But they were gained to him. What he's saying is that his priority and goal have changed. He's no longer trusting in those things and just longing to check off some external list of things to do. He's found the the white rabbit at the end of the search for ultimate truth. And his name is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's truth incarnate. He is the truth. He's found the truth. It's as though he's pursuing truth and pursuing God with everything he has. And even attacking and persecuting the truth that God sent to us in his son. He's pursuing truth with all that he has. And all of a sudden, on the Damascus Road, truth. The Lord of glory, the Lord confronted him on that road. He finally saw a glimpse of this truth, this pursuit that's worth everything else. He says, I count everything else as loss when compared with Christ, my Savior. It's worth nothing. It's meaningless. Verse 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dumb that I may win Christ. So now it's not just that he has Christ in a relationship, but he he counts all those things but loss compared with knowing Christ more, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So it's not as though you become a Christian and you have this encounter with Jesus 
And then now you go on the rest of your life and it's no more pursuit of knowledge. This mediocre, false Christian view of just going on through life doing your thing. No, he says, I count, I continue to count the pursuit of other things as far below the list of the knowledge of Christ. I don't want to put anything else that I might do. If it's going to hinder me and my knowledge of Christ, I don't want anything to do with it. If I can't know more of Him, I don't want to do it. This isn't saying that all things outside of knowing Christ are wrong. It's saying, where is your priority? Is Jesus Christ greater than everything else? And he had seen the risen Christ. And he'd seen the weight of his sin. Whether you think he was lost or saved, go read Romans 7. You get a picture of Paul's encounter with realizing the depths of his internal sin. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. There's a body of death that is surrounding all of us and within all of us before we know Christ. The weight of our sin is such that seeing this Christ, this one who can save, getting but a glimpse of him ought to be worth more than anything else you will ever know. It's worth more than it all. And he knew that his achievements couldn't save him. And that all of his works were worth nothing. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if you worked for 30 years saving up your money and investing it and investing it. And you've got the dream of buying this, you know, 40 acre place, beautiful house off in the woods somewhere. That's what I dream about sometimes. Beautiful little place, you know, you've got your back 40, a nice house. And you work for 30 years saving and investing. And at the very end, the day before you go and buy it, the stock market crashes and you lose everything. And somebody comes up to you and says, here, I'm going to give you a 10,000 acre ranch with cattle on a thousand hills and you can have it. You can have it. It'd be like looking back on those 30 years, 40 years, however long it took you to save that money, and just bragging about how, look what I've done. Look all the work that I did. All that's gone. It didn't, it didn't count at all towards what you received. It was a gift. It was free. And it wasn't according to your work. It was somebody else's work. You don't look back on those things which you've accomplished when somebody's given you a gift and say, well, that was part of it. No, it's a gift. And that's what he's saying. I have all and more in Christ than my works and filthy rags could ever have purchased. They're worthless. It's like the manure in light of Christ. Verse 9, he says, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Notice he says, And be found in Him. Is that interesting? Was it possible that the Apostle Paul could have reached the end of his days and not been found in Christ? Is that possible? Our theology says no. He was purchased before the foundation of the world. He was set apart and chosen by God. There's no way that he's not going to be found in him, but he's longing to be found in him. What does that tell you concerning perseverance? That the goal is not, okay, I enter into the kingdom of God by trusting in Jesus, and then that's it. It's It's not the idea of having a daily Ongoing, longing desire to be found more and more in Christ and know Him more and more. Daily pursuing Him. It's not superficial. It's not a one-time thing. He didn't want to win Christ to set Him on the shelf like some sort of trophy to show off. Oh yeah, look what I, look what I got way back when. It's daily pursuing to be found in Him. He longed to persevere. And you know, that's what marks those who will persevere. Is those who do persevere. Did you know that? Those who persevere. Endeavor to persevere. You ever heard that? Endeavor to persevere to the end. Those who persevere to the end, who have been chosen and set apart in Christ, are those who persevere to the end. And perseverance is ugly sometimes. And it's painful and heartbreaking. But it's raw and it's real. And you wake up one day and it's your last. And you stand before God and you, you finished the race. You fought the fight and finished well. But it's not as though you take your flu shot Jesus and then never worry about it again. Well, I'm going to persevere because that's what my doctrine says. 
What I'm telling you is that sometimes in our minds there's a disconnect between the theology that we believe and our practical experience of that theology. It's like getting a bonus from work. You're hurting for money and you pray and you pray and you pray asking God for, for something. And then you wake up and you've got a bonus from work that was sent to you a month before. And it's just been in the mail and got held up. And it was already on its way before you started praying. And you say, well, you know, I mean... They already sent it. That wasn't an answer to prayer. Are you stupid? Are you foolish? You think God doesn't use means? Our experience of what God does is there's a veil there of sorts. There's, we, we don't see how God does what He does. And it doesn't, to, just because we believe that we will persevere to the end doesn't mean that there's no struggle and it's not real between now and then. That there's not progress and failure. And bending and breaking and every sort of thing. Galatians 3.11, because he says, Not having mine own righteousness, in verse 9, which is of the law, Galatians 3.11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Whenever he says that the righteousness, not his own righteousness, but the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He's saying the only righteousness which God accepts is the righteousness of God. And the only way to access the righteousness of God is by faith. There is no other way to access the righteousness of God than by faith. Verse 10, he goes on and says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Now we see it's narrowed down. He says the focus of his goal in all of this is that he may know him. That he may know him, that I may know him. Talked about the excellency of the knowledge of Christ and that I may know him. Before he dives off into the eternal and altogether glorious benefits of knowing Christ, he names his first and chief goal is to know him. It's important the way that this is worded here. That he doesn't say the highlight, the focus here is not being, is is not that we know the power of his resurrection and that we know the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformable unto his death. The focus isn't what we benefit in eternal life. The focus first is knowing Christ. Eternal life apart from knowing Christ is hell. Misery, pain, sorrow, and suffering, apart from knowing Him. Knowing Him is eternal life. He says that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection is, is incomprehensible. We're going to hear more about this in the next verse. Just, just for a moment, ponder as we work through verse 10. Put this in the back of your mind until we get to the next verse. The idea of being raised from the dead, of resurrection. Just think about what that means, that there is a promise of resurrection for us. The power of Christ's resurrection, to know that, to know the power that that tore the veil that was separating us from God. The whole earth shook whenever He died, and I suppose that it shook whenever He rose. The resurrection of Christ is not something that we say, Yay, that's the end, that's the bookend to the gospel message, He rose from the dead. He completed it, he finished it, and then it's just some theological point that gets tucked away in your minds. That you're not humbled by the reality of his resurrection. You know, he was God. It was impossible that he stay dead. It was impossible that he stay in that grave. But does that make it any less significant? Any less impossible? Any less incredible? You see, Jesus Christ, his resurrection wasn't like the resurrection of Lazarus and others. And I've heard this said before, and it's true, it's kind of funny. But Lazarus, imagine that he had to die twice. He died once, and then Christ rose him, raised him up. Well, he had to die again after that. I mean, he's like, I already, I've already been through this once, you know. That had to be miserable. But Christ, he rose to never die. Seated at the right hand of the Father even now, he'll never die. As a man, he will never die. The power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection is that the wrath of Almighty God was upon him. To bear that weight and rise from that weight. The power of His resurrection isn't just that His moral body was given life to rise again. It's that all that He took upon Himself had been conquered and defeated. 
Death, hell, and the grave means so much more than just a little resuscitation. The power of his resurrection. And next, he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death. It's impossible to separate the reality of entering into Christ's sufferings and being made conformable to his death from the glory of knowing him and being saved. In other words, there's no Christianity apart from entering into his sufferings and being made conformable to his death. A Christian life is a hard one. It's difficult, full of pain. I mean, we know that. From Second Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Any pie-in-the-sky view of Christianity that doesn't involve suffering and sorrow, it says one of two things. Either you're not proclaiming the Christ of Scripture, the God of the Bible, you're not sharing that faith with people, and that's why you're not being persecuted, or it means that you, you don't, your conscience isn't bound and held captive to the Word of God and the Great Commission and those those people that you're surrounded by that are going to hell. A lot of the sufferings, whenever we see that Jesus wept, it was over the souls of men that were going to hell. And if you're not torn by that, if part of your suffering is not heartache and brokenheartedness over those who are lost, how can you even say that you identify with this Christ? Verse 11, he says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is what I wanted you to hold on to. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Do you realize that resurrection is utterly impossible? I mean, we read stuff like Frankenstein, watch movies and stuff. I mean, we've been so bombarded by the culture of this idea of resurrection being a nonchalant thing that we're really worn out with this. We're not gripped by the idea of resurrection the way that we ought to be. You know, in the Old Testament, they actually, many of them, didn't even have really an idea of resurrection. They saw the kingdom of God as temporal and now. That's why the Jews were wanting Christ to knock Rome out and establish them as the leading rulers of the world is because they had a temporal view. This idea of dying and then being raised from the dead, it's impossible. You watch movies, you play video games, you die 1,700 times and you keep, whoop, another life, another life. This idea of having more than one life, it's absolutely impossible to be raised from the dead. This is an impossibility that God has done and promised to us. He says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He's not saying that I'm going to do everything that I've got to do because I've got to do my part. I'm going to do all these things. No, he's saying this is the one way. If it's even possible for someone to be raised from the dead, this is the only way. If I might attain to it, it's only in Christ. That if by any means, well, there's only one means for resurrection. That's what he's saying. To attain to this resurrection. Being resurrected is not... A minor aspect of Christian belief. The reality of the promise of resurrection ought to bring us to our knees in humble adoration of God. Maybe we, it has to do with the fact that we don't let our minds go there whenever loved ones die. Think about the reality of the death and the decay. The fact that there are people, think about this, there are people who have died hundreds and hundreds of years ago whose remains are ash, dirt, they're nothing. They've rotted and decomposed at every level. That person, if they're in Christ, will be resurrected. The power of his resurrection and knowing that is incredible. That God will raise us from the dead. Verse 12, he says, Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ. First, sinless perfection is a lie from hell. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Not as though I had already attained. And keep in mind all of his external accomplishments. And now he's a born-again believer in Christ. Probably the most used person in the history of the world, apart from Jesus Christ himself, says, I haven't attained this. 
is I haven't attained to the resurrection, but I haven't attained to this perfect knowledge of Christ that he's pursuing. I haven't attained. I'm not already perfect. But I follow after that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. See, works are not the cause of his salvation, but the fruit of it. If that I may apprehend that for which I also or have been, in some translations, probably a better use there, have been apprehended of Christ Jesus. You see what he's saying? I have been arrested. I have been captured. Something has happened to me. And we get a picture of it in Acts on the Damascus Road. Something happened to this man. And he says, I'm pursuing that which happened to me. I'm going after that which came after me. Christ came to him first. Christ arrested him, apprehended him first. And all of his efforts and all of his striving, the fact that he sees, I haven't attained it, but I'm following after it because I want to attain it. It's not the way that he's saved. It's the pursuit of God because he has been. Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Read the book of James. Faith apart from works is dead. He's saying, I'm chasing after, reaching after, going after that which came after me. He was apprehended by Christ. And sometimes we don't, like I said a while ago about the reality of the disconnect between our understanding of theology and of God and our experience of it in time. It's like I've, I've, already, I've already said things against the synergistic, Christianity, that, you know, we call them Armenians, those who, who believe that they have something to do with their salvation. They prayed a prayer, they walked an aisle, they did X, Y, and Z. And I spoke against that already. But I'll also say this, that God uses means. And a person may sit there and believe that, wrongly, we're not saved by our right believing, and they can be a child of God and have wrong believing on some things. You understand what I'm saying? That a person can have walked an aisle and said a prayer and done all the external stuff. And at the same time, God, in spite of that, was filling them with his Holy Spirit and giving them new life. But it is not, nevertheless what God has done. Whenever it says that Paul was arrested and you read that Damascus Road experience, that light shined out of heaven and knocked him off his horse. You see that and you say, well, that doesn't happen to me. Maybe not in that exact way, but you were apprehended. If God had continued to let you go the way that you wanted to go, you would not be here right now. You've been apprehended by God. This is something that God has done first in you. Verse 13, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. This thing that I'm chasing after, that I'm seeking to attain, that I'm seeking to apprehend. Well, what had apprehended him? Christ. I count myself not to have apprehended. He had not fully apprehended Christ yet, well, who had apprehended him, who had arrested him. But this one thing, <coughs> excuse me, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And you understand now maybe why Paul went to such great lengths to say you're not saved by your own works. You're not saved by your own efforts. You have no confidence in the flesh. And now, get to work. You can't save yourself, but child of God, go to work. Press on, we're going to hear. Go to work. There's no such thing as a lazy Christian. It's a contradiction of terms. Lazy Christians ought not be. What you say about God and about Christ whenever you live that way is horrible. No such thing as a lazy Christian. There can't be. You're not saved by your own efforts, but you sure ought to have them. Your efforts are because you have been saved, because God has done something in you. You have been apprehended, so then you seek on. But what does he mean? Let's think about this for a minute, because maybe we only see one side of this. (coughs) What does he mean to forget those things which are behind? I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind. To say we need to all have some sort of memory loss surgery every couple of weeks and get rid of everything that's behind us, blank slate, not think about anything again, I'll tell you no. No, you lose a testimony. You lose the opportunity to worship and praise God for what He's done and delivered you from. But first let's consider this 
negatively. Forgetting negatively. Forgetting. What does it mean to forget those things which are behind? Not dwelling on all of the past sin in your life. Not being crippled by the sins in your life that you've dealt with. Even recent sins, child of God. Not living today and tomorrow and the next several weeks crippled over the reality that I've offended God as a child of God and He's not pleased with me. And being unfit and unuseful and unprofitable. Guess what? You don't get to neglect your family Fathers, husbands, because you've stumbled in sin. You have responsibilities. Tell me this, you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to work, and you get to work and you do something wrong and your boss gets on to you, you're just not going to work the next day? You stop taking care of your responsibilities as a father in that sense? No. You press on taking care of those things because you can't stop. Well, why is it different with God? Why is it that so often we think, I've stumbled, I've fallen, I've just got to stop for a while and get away from all this? We're crippled by the shame of our sin. He says, forget those things. Not that they're not there. God's forgiven you and granted you repentance for those things, but you move past them. You're not bound by them. Also, you forget attempts that you've made to please God in your own strength. That's what Paul says in verses 4 through 6. That's primarily what he's talking about here. He's saying, all that I did in my flesh and the confidence that I had in myself, those are the things that I was trusting in. I'm forgetting all of that. I'm moving past, counting it as lost, counting it as dumb, moving past those things, pursuing Christ, not being bound and reminded and thinking my own self highly. That's what he's saying. Forget those things which are behind. Because the reality is, we've already read, none of us are perfect. We sin daily. It's not a thing to shrug your shoulders at. And let me say something else while I'm on this negative sin. Spouses, what I'm not saying, husbands, is that whenever you sin against your wife and something needs to be dealt with, that you tell her, honey, no, we need to forget those things that lie behind. She need to move past that. Don't talk to me about that. God's forgiven me. We don't have to deal with that. That's not what he's saying. You must deal with the sin that you do to your spouse. And wives, or vice versa, what it's saying is you don't continue to beat them over the head with what God's already dealt with them on. You don't tear them down. You're sinning against them and against God if you're keeping them from doing this, what they're being commanded to do. Don't dwell on those things. Pursue Christ. Press on from those things. Don't remain. Don't linger. Press on from them. And then positively, I mentioned that Paul's accolades and accomplishments weren't without value. They had worth and value. They were gained to him, gained to him, but not boasting in successes, forgetting those things which lie behind, forgetting all of my failures, but also not dwelling on my successes and becoming big headed and thinking I've done well and gaining that confidence in the flesh, creeping back in, looking at your spiritual successes. I'm talking child of God whenever you look back and see accomplishments that you've done for Christ. People that you've seen saved through your testimony. Repentance that you've been granted. And looking back and looking at who you are today and who you were, and dwelling on that more than you ought, to the point where you become arrogant. Because I'll guarantee you, pride does come before the fall. You begin to... Feel pretty good about yourself. I'm scared for you. Because if you're his child, he will discipline you. And some of that discipline may be removing his hand of grace and allowing you to fall again. That you might see the one you're dependent on. Forgetting those things. Not seeing yourself as having arrived. There's still work to do. Focusing your aim at what is set before you. It says reaching forth unto those things which are before. It's not those things are completely gone. I'm never going to think about them again, my successes or my failures. But it's not dwelling on them. It's seeing my aim and my focus is to move to the next thing God has given me. God is setting things before us daily and every moment. How our attitude of heart must be. Responsibilities and opportunities. This is what God is setting before us every day. I reach forth unto those things which are before. In verse 14, he says, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Once again, no lazy Christians. I press towards the mark. I press on. I'm moving forward. I'm not staying where I am. I'm moving forward. 
It's been said, well, you're either moving forward or backwards. It applies to just about everything in life, whether you're talking about sports or your weight. You're always moving one way or the other. You're never really staying just the same. Pressing on, he says, I move forward. There is a pressing that is necessary. Are you just kind of meagerly moving towards Christ? This is this pressing, this I must have him, this apprehending that which apprehended me. There's a striving here. This is a, a really a, a, a deep word, this idea of pressing. It's, a, it's a, an emphatic term. You're pressing towards Christ, pressing, moving forward. So regardless of your past experiences or what position you may find yourself in life now, Christ hasn't changed from the day of Apostle Paul. He's still the King of Kings and He still desires for all of His people, all of His bride that He purchased with His own blood to come unto Me, He says. Do you think that because Christ is no longer on this earth that that calling, come unto Me, is no longer valid? There's a pressing that's necessary for all of us Christians. Are you pressing towards Christ? Press on from your failures. Press on. Flee from sin and press on towards righteousness. Press on. There are so many things we will bend over backwards to work for, to strive to attain. Do you have that level of commitment towards Christ? Towards Him? Knowing Him? Not just a standard. Not just an external motion walking through. Knowing Christ. (coughs) Are you pressing on to Him? Pressing on from your past attempts to please God yourself. A clear mark of someone who thinks they're pleasing God themselves in their own actions is whenever they fail, what's their attitude then? If whenever you fail, if you feel like there's no relationship with God and no opportunity to come before Him, you're just basically admitting that, well, I believed that my access to God before was because of my performance. You see that? No confidence in the flesh, he says, pressing on. It's a free gift. Press towards it. Nothing is holding you back from Christ but you. He says, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? It's the knowledge and conformity to Jesus Christ, being conformed to Him, knowing Him and being conformed to Him. That's the prize. That's the high calling. That's what Paul's been focusing on. That's why all these other accomplishments are dung and lost and worthless, without value in light of Christ, knowing Him. That's the prize. Knowing Him and being like Him. Is that what you want? Child of God, do you want to be like Christ? Do you want to know Him and be like Him and be with Him? Do you want it as bad as you want that new car? Do you want it as bad as you want that lake house or whatever? Do you want it as bad as you want to be able to pay your bills on time? It doesn't have to be lofty things that we crave after. It's anything we crave more than Christ. And you know how you know you crave Him more or not than those things? What will you do in order to do those things? How many hours of overtime and extra things and stuff will you sell and pawn and everything else to either be able to pay your bills or do what you have to do, take care of your family? What kind of commitment and pressing do you have towards Jesus Christ? Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Press on to be conformed to the image of Christ. Press on. And unbelievers, you know the Bible speaks of a pressing for you as well. Not in your attempts to please God. What you're not hearing me say is if you're outside of Christ today, if you'll just do work so hard, bend over backwards, go read about Martin Luther's experience with that, of trying to please God and all that he did to himself, you won't top him, I guarantee you. Unbelievers, you don't come to know God by some external effort. But there is a word towards you concerning this pressing. It's worded a little bit differently. Matthew 11 and verse 12 says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The violent take it by force. What do you mean? 
Heaven suffering, violence, and the violent take it by force? What are you talking about? <clears throat> the idea here is not that there's this army standing in front of heaven's gates with all of their weapons and tools, and they're coming in and tearing stuff up. No, this is a desperation. Heaven is not suffering. Heaven is being added to as violent people. People willing to gouge out eyes and cut off hands. Violence towards their sin. Desperation. They see their state. They see what they need. There's a pressing here. There's a pressing here. There's no such thing as a nominal, nonchalant Christian who knows God. Christianity's radical. Is Christ everything? If He's not, He's nothing to you. And if He's everything, are you treating Him as He's everything? Are you pressing? Pressing on? Unbelievers, you can know Christ. Did you know that? You can know Him today. You won't. You'll get up and walk out of this door and march happily on your way to hell. What does God call you to do? What does this pressing look like? How, does, how do violent people take the kingdom of heaven by force? There's a reason why it says in the days, from the days of John the Baptist until now in Matthew 11. What did John the Baptist preach? Repentance. Baptized unto Repentance. A preacher of the gospel, a preacher of repentance, of turning from your sin. First, you must see this great chasm that separates you from God. Believers, hear me well. When Paul says, forgetting those things that lie behind, I guarantee you he's not talking about this gospel that you're hearing now. If anything, it's the gospel that strengthens us and carries us as we press on. Press on in our knowledge of Christ and of the gospel. Pressing on. (coughs) But unbeliever, you're separated from God. And it will do you no good, it will do you no help to live the rest of your days being accepted as even a member of this church. Take communion here in a minute. You receive these elements. Say that you're remembering the body and blood of Christ. It will do you no good to go through these wonderful ordinances that can be external check marks. Do you no good to live your life this way and then stand before God. What men think of you does not matter a lick, and it won't help you. But knowing this Christ, this Savior, this He is the one who can make you safe. You can be safe from the wrath of God, safe from your sin. You can be in a safe place knowing Him, believing rightly about Christ. What He's done, He came and took on a flesh, and He went to that cross. For the joy that was set before Him, it says. There was joy for Him. It's not something where He went with His tail between His legs. He says, oh, I've got to do this. He knew the fierceness of the wrath of God and He had His own hatred for sins while He sweated drops of blood. It wasn't something that there was joy set before Him and He went and did it. And the joy set before us is the knowledge of Christ. You don't understand. You have no comprehension what it took for Jesus Christ to go to that cross, knowing what was waiting for Him there. You have no idea. But He did it. So that tells me that in my life, I can follow His example and see anything in my life. Righteousness, holiness, the knowledge of Christ, and being conformed to Him ought to bring me joy. These promises of God is a promise of joy. So I can pursue them. I can press towards them. And press on from your sin. Unbelievers, there's one name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. You must be saved. You must be saved. And you won't be saved apart from Jesus Christ. You won't be saved apart from trusting Him. You may be hearing this all the time. I'm sure you do hear. But God has promised. God has promised that His power is seen in the preaching of His gospel. The message of what He's done for us in His Son. Dealing with our sin. Raising Him from the, from the dead. Paul said, it's not grievous to me to write the same things to you. It's not grievous to me to tell the same things to you. Maybe I'll stand here just repeating this until everybody falls on their face or somebody drags me away from here. Jesus Christ died that you might live. Pressing on to know the depths of that. Paul Washer said it well. Spend eternity of eternity tracking down the glories of what happened on the cross and never reach the foothill of that mountain. And you won't. You won't. The good thing about this, it's another point in the chapter before in Philippians. 
Paul says in verse 13, it is God which works in you both to will and do his good pleasure. That means this pressing, like I talked about, the theological understanding and the practical reality is that this pressing doesn't happen apart from God working it and willing it in you. That means you can pray. You can ask, seek, and knock, God. Give me the desire for this. Give me the ability and the desire to press towards you. Show me more of yourself that I long for this. Don't be, don't be content to stay as you are. Pray with me. Heavenly Father. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. I thank you that we are not left to ourselves, that no part of our knowledge of you, of our salvation, is dependent upon us. Father, I thank you that you have done all that is necessary. Father, I pray for myself, for a deeper desire to be conformed to your Son. I pray for all of us that we might take what you've called us to do, and who you've called us to be seriously. Father, that we would press towards it with the fierceness of an animal and everything that is in us would cry out and long to know you more. Father, remove those things which hinder us, those comforts and eases that make it so easy to neglect you, if that's what it takes, Father. I thank you for your gospel and the glory of your Son, that we have a promise in Him. I pray that any who don't know Him might repent and believe on Him today. In Jesus' name, Amen.